How should the United States be responding to China's efforts to achieve global economic dominance? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Despite all the tensions that have arisen in recent years between China and the U.S., many continue to believe that the relationship between these two economic giants is too valuable to disrupt. On this episode, we get a different view. Jonathan Ward is the founder of Atlas Organization, a Washington, D.C.-based consultancy focusing on the rise of India and China. He has strong words for what he views as China's aspirations to dominate globally. China, he says, must be economically and militarily contained, even if that means disturbing the nearly $700 billion in trade of goods between the two countries. He'll tell us where the U.S. has gone wrong in its policies toward China and why it's time for a new economic and geopolitical strategy. We're going to have to win a contest for global economic power, he says. But have we already lost... Here's my conversation with Jonathan Ward. Dr. Jonathan Ward, welcome to the show. Hi, Bob. It's great to be with you. Founder of Atlas Organization and author of a new book, The Decisive Decade, American Grand Strategy for Triumph Over China. Looking forward to this conversation about relations between the United States and China, both on the business and the geopolitical side. And I think I'd like to start, Jonathan, by just asking you in general, where do you believe the United States has gone wrong in its trade, its economic and its political relationships with China? Well, sure, Bob. So the new book is all about how we can rectify where we are. And that's really from a whole geopolitical perspective. My first book, China's Vision of Victory, explained the long-term grand strategy of the Chinese Communist Party in their own documents, in their own words, in their own deeds, basically laid out the entire global strategy, the fact that they do have objectives and end state, this entire idea of the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation that they are working towards. And fundamentally, that has collided with the world, with the U.S.-led order And much of it was facilitated by the United States by bringing China into the world economy, into the WTO, basically a a strategic bargain that we had in mind where we thought that trade with China would cause China to liberalize, to become a responsible stakeholder, to become a friend and partner to the United States. And at this point, I think that's clear to very many people that it hasn't played out. So we went wrong, I think, some decades ago when we did not really recognize the Chinese Communist Party for what it is, understand where it wishes to go and how it was abusing and planning to abuse this relationship with the U.S. and and with the world. Much of fixing this situation will have to do with economic power. By handing off so much opportunity to, to the People's Republic of China, bringing them into the world economy, doing all of that, the United States has taken, in a sense, a benign strategic intent, hoping that China would become this partner and instead created this enormous strategic problem for ourselves and for the rest of the free world. So we're going to have to win a contest for global economic power, and we're going to have Mm -hmm. to win that against an adversary that knows exactly what it's doing, that has strategies and methods of utilizing economic power in order to build up their broader capability in the international system. And that has gone so far along 
that it looks as though, for many people, this looks as though it has already been lost. I mean, China's okay. rise as an economic superpower is something that many people think is irreversible, but American grand strategy is going to have to be focused on gaining our advantages once again over the People's Republic of China. And that means that the business sector across the board in pretty much every industry that matters, is going to be at the center of this new contest. And this contest is not going away. It's just getting started. It is interesting that back before the handover of Hong Kong back to China in 97, the discussion was, is Hong Kong going to become more like China? And the optimists were saying, oh, no, China is going to become more like Hong Kong. Fundamental to China's ambitions is, of course, the Belt and Road Initiative. How is that proceeding at the moment, and what role do you think that plays in China's attempt at hegemony and economic supremacy around the world? Well, the Belt and Road is the geographic picture of their overall ambitions. So on one hand, it's an economic strategy. It's designed to tie the major continents of the world back to China, creating an economic order with China as the center. On the other hand, it's also a military strategy. They've made that very clear. I explained a lot of that in China's vision of victory, how they seek to protect what they call their ceaselessly expanding overseas interests. So their military is ultimately going to be designed to protect their interests across this intercontinental mm -hmm. system. As for how it's going. They've invested over $950 billion in um, Belt and Road countries over the past 15 years. Their state-owned enterprises and state-backed enterprises, their banks, their construction companies, their tech companies, really the whole picture of the Chinese corporate stack is going out into these countries and gaining market share and building essentially uh, the economic empire of the Chinese Communist Party. So even as they have trouble at home with demographics or let's say with the housing market or those sorts of things, they have a massive global footprint and they call that global footprint, the Belt and Road, but they also have a military that they intend to utilize to protect their interests across this very vast portion of the world's geography from Africa and to the, Asia to the Indian Ocean to the South Pacific and beyond. And the countries through which the Belt and Road in Initiative pass often find themselves in debt to China when they can't pay for the projects that were promised under it. And of course, that means the, in many cases, those assets get handed over to China, which further uh, increases its influence in those parts of the world. Yeah. Right. And these are very important strategic assets. I mean, you're talking about ports all around the world. I mean, over 90 different ports around the globe owned or, or mostly owned by China. You're talking about railroad, even a digital Silk Road now where their technology is becoming part of this picture and part of the world's infrastructure. And all of that at the end of the day goes back to Beijing, where Beijing is the, the metropole here that has this vision of global imperial power. And yet our whole economy has become so inextricably linked with that of China through trade. Is so-called decoupling a practical policy? Well, it depends on the degree to which that happens. And that's a very important piece of this picture because some degree of decoupling is inevitable. I mean, on one hand, it's going to happen because we're not going to be driving Huawei smart cars or using Alibaba smart homes in the United States or in Europe or in Japan. And on the other hand, they've already made clear that they'd like to what they call indigenize certain key pieces and in certain strategic industries. So they call it dual circulation where they would like to have the world's supply chains tied closer to China, and at the same time, they'd like to be less dependent on external countries. So that's their approach. But for our approach, we have to de-risk 
and in some cases decouple certain strategic industries. So the White House has already made clear that priorities include pharmaceuticals, critical minerals, rare earths, electric vehicle batteries, semiconductors and microelectronics. And then you go to the broader Chips and Science Act, which shows even further what the strategic industries are. We have an entire set of industries and technologies that for which we just cannot depend on an adversary state that, let's not forget, is building a military that's designed for war with the United States in the Pacific. So that's what we're going through. We basically moved our supply chains into an adversary that is building a military that it intends to use. So none of that is is a tenable strategic position. The business community is going to find itself in the middle of that. That's already started. It's going to get more severe. And we are going to have to secure important industries, restructure the trading relationship. I mean, right now it's about an $800 billion trading relationship that is mostly in China's favor. Our exports are basically flat at 150 billion, but our imports continue from China. So looking to other countries, I mean, how do we import from friendly nations, like-minded nations? How do we move supply chains to other places? I mean, there are many other parts of the world, and we can talk about all of that, that we can work with in order to restructure this. And then much more broadly, we're going to have to restructure the world economy as an alliance system so that we are not dependent on the People's Republic of China. And our overall exposure, I mean, the interconnectedness of our economies is true to a certain degree, but it also, I, I don't think it is fundamentally unsolvable. Do you think it's the role of the federal government to in any way compel American business to withdraw or reduce its dependence on China? Or are we simply asking businesses to do it on its own because it's in the interest not only of those businesses as well as, well as it is of the country itself? Well, it's really all three parts there. I mean, yes, the United States government is going to have to compel companies not to invest, for example, in an adversary state, not to transfer technology to an adversary state. So there is a government role here that also goes broader towards economic containment of China, which I've talked about in the decisive decade. I mean, what would our counter China strategy look like in an economic way? But then businesses should be much more aligned with the US and allied national interest. I mean, that's for their own preservation in the long run. I think the idea that you're going to be completely independent of these problems as we head into the toughest geopolitical period since the early Cold War, I mean, that's just not going to be a good business strategy. And then third, for the sake of not just the national interests, but for their own interests. I mean, I think business leaders, executives, supply chain officers, risk officers, strategy officers, I mean, everybody needs to be participating in how to navigate these geopolitics and how to swing to the right side. I mean, it's going to be in your own interest to have a viable geopolitical strategy strategy from the C-suite board on down through the company, because the absence of that is going to create enormous risks for a company. And there are definitely going to be companies that won't be with us at the end of this decade because they've made big mistakes in China or ignored the nature and direction of U.S.-China competition. Sector by sector, that is a different story in each sector. It can get very specific, but it's also true, I think, of most most companies that do any sort of global business today. But when you talk about economic containment of China, that seems to go beyond the idea of our taking actions on our end to reduce our dependence on China. It feels like a more proactive and aggressive attitude toward China to be economically containing them. What does that phrase mean to you? Sure. So economic containment is actually, a, it, it originated in the Cold War as a phrase. It is, I think, the right strategy when it comes to not only the reconstruction of the U.S., the security of our supply chains, 
influence, but also the fact that you were going to have to work to ensure that, that China is not growing in certain ways that are dangerous to us. I mean, let's not forget that this is all being reinvested into military power, which is essentially expansionist. They have territorial claims throughout the island chains, uh, throughout the Indo-Pacific. That is a big piece of the problem. This is not that we're dealing with a friendly state. We're dealing with an aggressive state. You brought brought up Hong Kong. I mean, we can see what happened there. You can look at the genocide in Xinjiang. You can look at the military buildup, the force structure of the Chinese military that is designed to defeat us in space, on sea, to range our bases across the Pacific, their support economically for Putin's war in Ukraine. And we have a full spectrum geopolitical problem (laughs) with a hostile adversary state. So the ability to do containment is frankly a lucky thing. I mean, containment is the intermediate peace. It's not war, and it's also not allowing an adversary to succeed at its its strategic objective. So economic containment is really about slowing down the rise of China simply by no longer participating in it, funding it, and allowing it. I mean, so much of their rise at this point from its beginning and certainly into its future is about their access to our technology, to our capital, and to our markets. And when I say our, I mean both the United States and the U.S. alliance system, where the U.S. military alliance system alone makes up over half of global GDP. If you add the world's democracies more broadly, you get to about 65% of global GDP. Then you get to the world's wealth, and you're talking about 75% of global GDP. So all of that, I mean, China needs access to the economies of the world's democracies in order to continue to rise. And if we're able to shut that down in terms of market access, technology access, and access to capital, their rise slows and the geopolitical contest transforms. And if we fail to do that, we wind up in the world of 2030 or so with geopolitics that will be so impossible to manage because China will be such a larger and more powerful player than it is at this okay. time. Okay. Well, let's let's move from economic to military. Should we be doing more to challenge China's increasingly aggressive moves in the South China Sea? Well, look, the South China Sea is not really the whole game board. I mean, for the Chinese government, The South China Sea is actually the gateway to the Indian Ocean. It's a gateway across that to Africa, to the Middle East, to Europe. It's a gateway to the South Pacific, to the Northern Sea Route. And they've explained that all in their strategy documents. So they're they're playing a much bigger geographical game that's fully global. So what can we do? I mean, they've built the islands. We're going to have to build our counterpoints and and set up our force structure and positioning in the Indo-Pacific to maintain deterrence, which of course has been the fundamental U.S. military strategy for as long as we've existed in, a, in as a nation. I mean, George Washington, I think, was the first to say the best way to avoid war is to prepare for it. So we're going to have to make sure that we have the right systems and structure in place in the Pacific, including with our allies, to make sure that they do not believe that they can win a war. So that's where U.S. defense strategy is concentrated and needs to continue to concentrate. And you can see how that gets so much harder and more difficult with a country that's growing economically and reinvesting into military power and outward expansion. So bottom line, I mean, if we are able to go through with economic containment, also restructure our supply chains, reinvest in our own industrial base, create U.S. growth through all the methods that one can employ to do that, we're going to have much greater amounts of capital and resources to rebuild our peace through strength, rebuild our position in the Pacific, rebuild the alliance system and focus on these problems and deter and therefore contain expansion from a military standpoint as well. But you have to get the economics right in order to sustain a realistic defense strategy in the 2020s and beyond. Well, let's explore some of the most dire scenarios, which just a few years ago might have been dismissed, but are increasingly becoming something that people are at least thinking about. Let's talk about Taiwan for a moment. What would we do if if China simply decided to blockade Taiwan? 
Well, look, if they decide to blockade the, in Taiwan, I mean, it, at the end of the day, this is a decision for the president of the United States and no one else. But you know, as a friend of mine once said in, in Washington, Taiwan is the Berlin of the new Cold War. And I thought in a certain sense, that's an optimistic case when one understands the situation and some of its details. If Taiwan is able to be the thing that both sides, I mean, Beijing wants to to take Taiwan and we do not want them to have it. And Taiwan does not want to be part of the mainland. So if we're able to sustain that position where they're not able to actually execute successfully either an invasion or large scale military operations or even a blockade, I mean, we may find ourselves much like Berlin, where there are a series of crises. I mean, we've already gone through a couple and historically Taiwan has been a center point of U.S.-China crises since the 1950s. There were two in that period and one in the 90s, and I think we've experienced a couple smaller ones already. But the bottom line is we had to do the Berlin airlift. I mean, if we have a Taiwan blockade and that were really to have teeth and start to trouble the island, then then what does it look like to resupply them? I mean, these are going to be would be the questions of that particular moment. Do you think that Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the way it has played out might have either emboldened China to do the same to Taiwan or perhaps discouraged it from making such a move? I think a little bit of both. On one hand, they understood how rapidly not only the United States but the allied Europe was able to apply sanctions to Russia. And I think those sanctions were pretty significant, I mean, very large-scale sanctions, and, and how quickly and well we worked together as an alliance system to do that. I think that's something that probably alarmed Beijing. Obviously, the, the destruction of much of Putin's professional military has probably not given them confidence. On the other hand, now that Putin is in the field at war in Europe, I believe that that is keeping in mind that the Russia-China relationship is a military relationship that is longstanding and increasingly deep. If they want to mount an attack on Taiwan or even on offshore islands or something like that, having Putin at war in Europe certainly would divide sort of how the West is able to concentrate. So so I think that accelerates the time frame, perhaps. The uh, new issue of The Economist speculates whether China's power is, quote unquote, topping out with India becoming the world's most populated nation, China's own population shrinking, its economy slowing. What do you think? Do you think we might actually be at peak China? No, I don't think that's true. And The Economist has had many mis- readings of China over the decades, including especially liberalization theory. But most major investment banks still project 4 to 5% growth in China for the remainder of the decade. They see that as a combination of a growing middle class, total factor productivity growth, urbanization, all of that. So I think those that are studying this carefully are still seeing growth in China. I mean, many companies still forecast growth in China. That does not mean it's a wise business strategy or a business decision, because you're talking about a geopolitical adversary, not just an economy that's growing and or sectors that are growing. But I think China's power has not peaked. I think they're not at all. I think not unless we do something to start playing the game to counter them and on its own. It still has another 10 years or so to go. And finally, to get back to the business community for a moment, indeed, many businesses are, if not withdrawing from China, are reducing their dependence on manufacturing in China, or diversifying their supply chains. But it seems like a lot of those efforts are largely out of self-interest. In other words, they're de-risking or mitigating risk in their supply chain by diversifying their supply base, going to other places. It's not like they're doing it for any higher purpose to contain China economically. How do you feel about the awareness of business as to the importance of what we're talking about today? Do you think that they might be waking up to it, or would it continue to be more a business decision one way or another as to how they treat China? I think there's the beginnings of a business awakening to this situation, but I think there's still a significant amount of optimism 
in the business community about just the idea of the billion customers and the fact that there are real revenues from China and there are significant supply chains that will be hard to move. So depending on how broadly one is speaking about this, I think that business uh, has a long way to go in, in forming a full spectrum approach to this situation. And yes, there are certainly economic factors in play aside from national security or, or national interest factors. I mean, the fact that you can get lower cost labor, you can potentially get efficient supply chains elsewhere in the world. I mean, that's all very important. But I think the other side of it is that most of what businesses I can tell is doing is looking to de-risk supply chains for the sake of what used to be a global supply chain and global economy. For example, making in China to supply the US market or even the European market. I mean, that sort of strategy probably makes a lot less sense and has made less sense since the, the trade war of 2018 really brought these issues into the boardroom. But they want to maintain their China businesses. And I think that is also a misreading of where this is going because it still requires investment in the Chinese market to remain competitive. I mean, Chinese competitors have, have stolen so much intellectual property at this point that the path forward for an American or foreign business in, in the People's Republic of China, I think is going to be very rocky and a lot will be lost in pursuing that because of intellectual property theft, capital allocation, and other things just to stay in the market. That At the end of the day, a lot of that is against, I think, the broader geopolitical interest of the U.S., the allies, and the free world. I mean, we are already seeing Congress and the White House talk about outbound sort of investment restrictions when it comes to certain industries in China. And that's just a normal thing to do when you have to invest in your own industries to remain competitive. We can't have our companies investing in the adversary state. As I said in the book, it's not enough just to drive your car faster when the adversary is sitting in the passenger seat next to you. So we still have a lot of work to do. And I think companies need a full spectrum China strategy that is not simply driven by interests in the China market or the, the need to sort of create a a new regionalized supply chain. It's a, it's a bigger issue than that. Dr. Jonathan Ward of the Atlas Organization, author of a new book, The Decisive Decade, American Grand Strategy for Triumph Over China. We'll link to that book in the show notes. Thanks so much, Jonathan, for your time. I really appreciate your insights. Thank you, Bob. Great to be with you. That was my conversation with Jonathan Ward of Atlas Organization, talking about how to counter the economic rise of China. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read our Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. And also watch videos on our YouTube channel. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well and see you next time.